preaching and teaching. They must go together for Christians to grow in their daily walk. Here's Pastor John Randall. You can break down every Greek word in the New Testament, give the tense in which it is used, how many times it is used. You can be an expert in hermeneutics and homiletics and all the rest of those things. And people can get all kinds of knowledge, but if there is not attached to that instruction, exhortation, an element of preaching, you will have a group of people that are very cerebral, but they're just not very practical. So I think that there, it is important that there is a balance of preaching and teaching. Throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus was questioned repeatedly by people of all types and all professions. Some, as we'll see today, questioned his authority. Here on this edition of A Daily Walk, Pastor John Randall opens the 20th chapter of Luke as we continue making our way through the entire gospel. Questioning the authority of the Son of God? Not a very wise thing to do. Here's Pastor John Randall. Luke chapter 20, and I want to draw your attention beginning in the first eight verses, if you'd follow along. Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. And he spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or, who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered, and he said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In our study through the gospel of Luke, we have now arrived at the final week of the life and ministry of Jesus, commonly called the Passion Week. It was the time of the Passover in Jerusalem where thousands of pilgrims had gathered together to commemorate Israel's deliverance from their Egyptian slavery so many years earlier. Jesus made a triumphal entry into the city on this Passover, riding upon the foal of a donkey, fulfilling biblical prophecy that had been written 500 years earlier by Zechariah the prophet. The people then gathered around Jesus and they began to wave palm branches and they were shouting the messianic passage of Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When the religious leaders heard that the people were calling Jesus the Messiah, they became indignant at this demonstration and that the fact that Jesus would receive the praises of the people and they told Jesus to tell the people to be silent. But Jesus said, if I tell these people to be silent, the rocks themselves will cry out. The Bible records that Jesus then wept over the city of Jerusalem, not only because of its present rejection, but also because of its future destruction. Jesus then went into the temple area and for a second time in his ministry, he overturned the tables of the money changers. He drove out all of the livestock and he restored order to the temple, the house of the Lord that had been turned into a den of thieves. Following the cleansing of the temple, the Bible says that all of the blind and the lame 
were able to come to Jesus and receive a healing touch from him. In addition to healing, Luke records for us here at the beginning of chapter 20 that as Jesus was in the temple, that he taught the people and he preached the gospel. Two things that Jesus did while in the temple area and really throughout his ministry. He was teaching people the word of God and he was preaching the good news of the gospel. The multitudes that followed Jesus noticed a distinct difference in the way that Jesus taught as compared to the religious leaders of the day. You remember that after Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, that when he had concluded that the people, it says, were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. When the Pharisees and scribes would teach, they would quote other authorities. But when Jesus taught, Jesus was the ultimate authority. And the people took notice of this. You remember when Jesus visited his hometown synagogue there in Nazareth. Luke records that Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah. And he began to read from the scroll of Isaiah. And he told the people that the passage that he had read was being fulfilled in their midst or on that day. In other words, he said, what has been written here is being fulfilled by me being here. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter four that all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. In John chapter seven, as Jesus was preaching in the temple area, officers were sent to remove him and bring him to the religious leaders. But when the officers went to confront Jesus, they listened to his teaching. And when he had concluded, they came back empty handed. And the religious leaders said, why did you not bring him to us? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. The preaching and the proclamation of the good news of the coming kingdom was a consistent theme of Jesus' preaching. And it was through his preaching that Jesus exhorted and challenged the people to both repent and respond to the gospel. And the Bible says that the common man heard Jesus gladly. I believe that preaching is an important part of what should take place from the ministry of the pulpit within the church. With effective preaching, there will always be an element of exhortation, of conviction, of rebuke if necessary, a stirring up of the hearts of the listeners to make a decision, to consider their ways. That's effective preaching. At the same time, I believe that teaching, that is instruction from God's word, is also essential. People need to understand what it is that you are presenting, and therefore they need to be taught. It should be the desire of every person who shares the word of God that the hearers will be learning and growing in the knowledge of God's word. I believe that is why Paul exhorted Timothy, a young pastor, to be diligent, to present himself, approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is a balance with teaching and preaching that helps people grow in their relationship with the Lord. If you only have preaching, people may, and people will say from time to time, that guy is a, that guy's a great preacher. And we use that word. If there is only preaching, people may be excited and moved by your presentation, but without instruction, they won't know what to do or how to do it 
or what it is that you're encouraging them to do. They're excited, but they don't know why. This is good preaching, but there also needs to be instruction. At the same time, if all that you have is teaching, you can break down every Greek word in the New Testament, give the tense in which it is used, how many times it is used. You can be an expert in hermeneutics and homiletics and all the rest of those things. And and people can, can get all kinds of knowledge. But if there is not attached to that instruction, exhortation, an element of preaching, you will have a group of people that are very cerebral, but they're just not very practical. So I think that there, it is important that there is a balance of preaching and teaching, even as seen in the ministry of Jesus. But while Jesus was teaching and preaching, we find here that he was interrupted by a delegation of chief priests, scribes, and the elders. And these men were in an outrage over the fact that Jesus had come in and overturned their tables and driven out all of their employees. And they wanted an answer. They wanted to know where it was that Jesus got the authority to come in and do what he had just done. Because to be able to come in and overturn all of their tables and do what Jesus had done, you had to have authority. You couldn't just, anybody could walk in and do that. So where did he get this authority? It's a fair question. Because the religious leaders were the ones who were supposed to be the protectors of the temple. They had received their authority from various rabbinic authorities. But where did Jesus receive his authority? Jesus did not attend any well-known schools. He did not sit under any notarized rabbinic tutelage. So how did he think that he was able to come in and do what he did inside the temple area? Well, throughout his ministry, Jesus had demonstrated where his authority came from, didn't he? In Matthew's gospel, the ninth chapter, Jesus demonstrated his authority to forgive sins. Jesus was there in the home of Peter. And as Peter was gathered there in his house, multitudes were there being healed by Jesus. And the roof of Peter's house began to come off. You remember that? And they lowered a man down into the presence of Jesus. And as Jesus saw the man being lowered, he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And within the hearts and minds of the religious leaders, they thought to themselves, no one has authority to forgive sins, but God alone. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, it says, he said to the man and to those that were gathered there, that you might know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your bed and go home. And that man who was lame stood to his feet and walked out whole. Jesus had authority that came from heaven On another occasion, Jesus demonstrated and spoke of his authority over demonic spirits. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples on a short missionary journey. And it says he gave them authority over demonic spirits. Where did he get this authority? Obviously, it was from heaven. They were subject to his authority. Jesus also declared that he had authority over life and death. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus, the authority over life and death. Also, Jesus in his prayer to his father recorded in John 17 said that he had authority to give eternal life. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus, it's obvious his authority came from heaven. But the religious leaders 
were unable to see this. They were blind. And so they questioned Jesus, and they were hoping to find something with which to accuse Jesus. And so Jesus responds in verse 3. He answered, and he said to them, I will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? A very simple question. The baptism of John, the ministry of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Jesus wasn't opposed to answering their question, but listen, he wisely answers their question by asking them a question. And the answer that they give to his question will also provide the answer to their question. These religious leaders were on the horns of a dilemma. The ministry of John the Baptist had one focus, one purpose, and that was to point everybody to Jesus. John said that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He said, I'm not worthy to get down and untie the Messiah's shoes, his sandals. He said, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with fire and his winnowing fan is in his hand and he's going to purge his threshing floor. And when Jesus came down to the Jordan to be baptized by John, John immediately directed all the attention to Jesus saying, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's ministry was all about Jesus, John decreasing, Jesus increasing, And the Pharisees knew this, for John had confronted them when they came out to see him baptizing people in the Jordan. John called the religious leaders a brood of vipers, told them to repent and to not think that because they were children of Abraham that their salvation was secure, for God was able to raise up descendants of Abraham from the rocks if necessary. He called them to repent and they despised him for it. But the people... Oh, the people felt that John's ministry was from God. They responded to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan as an outward sign of their repentance. The people knew that John's ministry was legitimate and the authority with which he ministered was prophetically authentic. But how would the religious leaders respond to this? They reasoned among themselves. Notice what it says. They reasoned and they said, if we say from heaven, then Jesus will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And so Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The religious leaders understood that however they answered the question, they would lose the argument. If they answered this way, they would lose the argument. If they answered this way, they would lose the argument. If they said John's ministry was from heaven, Jesus would say, then how come you didn't believe him? Why did you not repent at the preaching of John? If they said that his ministry was from men, it wasn't from heaven, then the people who they were seeking to sway to be opposed to Jesus would now be opposed to them. And so they lied. They answered and they said, we don't know. But that wasn't true, was it? They did know the answer, but they were unwilling to concede. You know, you find people like that even today concerning Jesus. They know the answers. They have the information as to who Jesus is. They have the word of God. They know of his identity, but because of the hardness of their heart, because of the pursuit of sin, they won't repent and come to him. They love darkness rather than light. Oh, they don't have answers for where they're going to go for eternity. 
although Jesus has provided it, and yet they reject him. They reject the message of the gospel. Listen to what F.B. Meyer said concerning such people like those here. He said, what use was it to endeavor to satisfy these men who had refused to acknowledge the divine mission? He went on to say, they would not speak their inner convictions because of the effect that it would have on their worldly prospects. And for such as these, Christ had nothing. And there are people like that today. They will not speak out their inner convictions, but they will suppress the truth. They'll believe a lie and they'll be turned away to fables. Why? Because it would hinder their worldly prospects. Friend, I pray that that's not you. I pray that you have the hope of heaven. I pray that you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Following this first question of authority, Jesus now responds with a parabolic teaching. And it would seem that the other gospels, as you harmonize them, record that Jesus actually spoke three parables directed at the religious leaders that would unmask their true intentions. Luke records the parable of the wicked tenant farmers here, beginning in verse 9. Please follow along. Then he began to tell the people a parable. He said, a certain man planted a vineyard. He leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third And they wounded him and also cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. And he looked at them and he said, what then is this that was written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls upon the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people for they knew He had spoken this parable against them. Jesus now gives a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, a spiritual truth encased in this story, and it was directed toward the religious leaders, and they knew it. They knew that Jesus was speaking to them. But what does this parable represent? First of all, make note what the vineyard represents. The vineyard is a representation of the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7 reads this way. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. God was the one that had planted Israel. God had chosen Israel. Matthew's gospel in a parallel passage says that he he built a tower. He dug a hedge. He provided all of these things for the vineyard to bear good fruit. If the vineyard is the nation of Israel, who then is the vineyard owner? The owner of the vineyard is none other than God himself. He is the owner of the vineyard within the parable. Then the question becomes, well then, who are the servants that were sent by the vineyard owner to reap a harvest from 
those he had leased the vineyard to. Well, those were the prophets. These were the ones that God had sent throughout the history of the nation of Israel when they rebelled to return and to respond and repent. You think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor, the major prophets, all of those who had a word from God sent to the people. And what did they do when the prophets came? Having just read through the book of Jeremiah recently, I know what happened to Jeremiah. He was put in prison. He was shunned. He was hated. He was thrown into a pit. Why? Because he told them the truth. And so he was despised because of it. And all of these servants had been sent over and over throughout the history of the nation of Israel to this vineyard, and they were rejected. Well, who then is the beloved son that is found within this passage? It's none other than Jesus. The father, having sent all of the prophets, determined to send his beloved son to come to the people, saying, surely they will respect him. But when he came, what did they do? Well, at the end of this week, on Good Friday, they would take him outside of the city, just like he was outside of the vineyard, and they would crucify him and put him to death. And Jesus then said, what will happen to those who had been given the vineyard? It'll be taken from them. They will be judged and the vineyard will be given to someone else. And when the Pharisees heard that, when the religious leaders heard the the end of the story, they cried out, certainly not. It'll never happen. Nice story. It's not true. They knew that he was speaking about them. What else does this parable reveal to us? I think there are a few lessons that you could take away from it. First of all, the long suffering and patience of God. God is long-suffering. Notice how many times the landowner sent repeatedly servants to reach the people, and yet they rejected them. A normal landowner would not tolerate such insolence. He would immediately put down any kind of rebellion. But here you have this landowner sending servant after servant after servant. It speaks of the long-suffering of God. The Bible says that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Some people don't understand that. They think that the long-suffering of God is actually his acceptance of their lifestyle or their behavior, when really God is just being gracious, and he's seeking to get your attention. For some of you here this morning, God may have been sending person after person into your life. Some, you think you're a Christian magnet. Why is it all of a sudden that all these people around me, and they keep talking about Jesus? Like the woman I met here last night who had people coming into her life, And she decided to give her life to Christ. And maybe that's you. God's been speaking to you and bringing people. And you've been rejecting and thinking, this is just coincidence. And why does everybody keep telling me this? And and God's seeking to get your attention because he's long-suffering, friend. Please respond to the long-suffering and kindness of God and repent and receive salvation. Well, Pastor John Randall is leading us through the Bible right now on a daily walk. And I'd imagine some of you would like to hear this message from Luke again. Maybe you joined us late. Go online to adailywalk.org and have a listen when it's most convenient. Or request a CD copy for a cost of just $5. You can reach us toll free at 877-242-0828. That's 877-242-0828. Another way to listen to Pastor John's teachings is through our mobile app. It's free and even available on Apple TV. Do a search for Calvary South OC. And we have a podcast, too, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we're super excited about this month's offer. It's a book from our friend in the ministry, Barry Stagner, titled The Time of the Signs. In it, Barry explores the events that will precede Christ's return. And he answers common questions like, Why is the rebirth of Israel the most significant sign that the end times are near? 
Where does the rapture fit in the chronology of all that will occur in the last days? We're making it available to our A Daily Walk listeners for the cost of $12. Again, you can order online at adailywalk.org or call us at 877-242-0828. And by the way, anything given above that amount will be put to good use and help people all over the world grow in their daily walk as they listen to these daily studies. In some cases, actually enter into a relationship with Christ. Again, you can donate online safely and securely at adailywalk.org. You know, we often say it around here at A Daily Walk because it's true. We want to hear from you. It lets us know where the ministry is having an impact. And also, we love praying for our listeners. Write to Pastor John by email today at adailywalk at gmail.com. That's adailywalk.com at gmail.com. Now here's a preview of our next study in Luke from Pastor John. Listen carefully. I can tell you from experience, it is much better to fall upon the rock and be broken, to be humbled, than to have the rock fall upon you and grind you to powder. Friend, I encourage you, humble yourself. Humble yourself, fall upon the Lord, on the rock which is Christ, and be broken, and he will make you whole or else the rock will fall upon you and grind you to powder. There is an easy way and there is a difficult way. There's a hard way. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof, the Bible says, is destruction. Which way are you on? Consider that with us next time on A Daily Walk with John Randall as our series in Luke continues. A Daily Walk is a presentation of Calvary South O.C.